I invite you to take your scriptures and turn to Isaiah 45. We've been talking about gospel U-turns through Missions Month. Isaiah 45, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 23 today that was read a little earlier. In this series, we've been asking and answering two questions, and we want to do the same thing again today. They are, what does it mean to be a Christian, and how does someone become a Christian? Christians are, we've established from the Bible, people who have taken a gospel U-turn. They are people who were headed in one direction, namely in their own sin, away from God. But then they put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. And he died for their sins and rose again. And now they have turned from that way to a completely new way of living their lives. A new direction, namely to God. And they've submitted themselves and everything in their lives to King Jesus. Well, how does this happen A Christian is someone who has come to believe, obviously through the work and power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that the one true God of the Bible is the only God. And all the false gods and false religions of our world cannot save. And that Jesus himself and what he has done for us and who he is, is the only salvation of sin. They basically have come to the realization that what they're looking for and the satisfaction they're seeking to gain can only be found in the satisfaction of the thirsting of their soul in him. C.S. Lewis, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, they're very good. And one of the books, number six to be exact, is called The Silver Chair. And in it there is a dialogue between Aslan, who is the lion who represents Jesus, And a little girl who stumbles upon him by a stream when she is dying of thirst. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? I mean, would you be willing to go away while I drink? The lion only answered by a look and a low growl. And she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But yet the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Jill says, will you not promise to do anything to me if I do come and drink? I make no promise, says the lion. Jill was so thirsty that without noticing, she took another step toward the lion and toward the stream. Do you eat little girls, she says? I have swallowed up girls and boys and women and men and kings and empires and cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it because it was boasting and it didn't say it because it was sorry, nor did it say it because he was angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, she said. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, Jill exclaimed, coming another step closer. I suppose then I must go and look for another stream. The lion said, 
there is no other stream. See, that's the claim of the gospel. The claim of the gospel and why you and I need to make U-turns is because there is no other stream. Christians are people who have come by knowledge of the truth and experience in their life. They've come to the place that realizing salvation from sin is in God through Jesus Christ, and there is no other stream. It's the only place that you can eternally get your soul thirst quenched. That very truth that I expound to you today is not popular whatsoever in our postmodern culture, where religion is supposed to be a private thing and basically a personal preference, kind of like when you get your hair done, that you want it this length and this look and this color. People say you basically just choose your religious preference and whatever satisfies you. It's not supposed to be a public thing. It's not a thing that you tell other people that they should do or they must do. And you certainly should never force it upon anybody. A postmodern culture where truth is relative, where we might, what is good and right is up for you to decide. And what's good for you may not be good for me. It's a society and a culture where there are no longer any absolutes, where right and wrong is not static, but it's dynamic. It has no objective standard, and to be able to determine right from wrong has become completely arbitrary. In fact, we would say it's actually up for grabs. To say there is no other stream in our day is to speak of pluralism as if it is a wrong thing. And to be intolerant in our thinking. But there is no debate and there is no denying as you read scripture. And particularly in this portion of God's word in Isaiah 45. That the gospel is exclusive. When Isaiah penned this prophecy 700 years before Christ. Israel as a nation was surrounded by foreign nations and foreign gods and deities. And they were completely surrounded by pluralism there was a shelf as it were with all the world's gods lined up for it all trying to get you to choose the one that you think is best for you and in the midst of all of that pluralism and all those gods on the shelf isaiah writes the words that there is no other god this is often true in america where even churches have gone away from the one true God and worshipped others in a hubris way. I put a slide on the screen right at this point. There's a church recently, and it said there, you can see it there, that they're having a special service that everyone's getting together to pray for the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. And he had hurt his ankle, and they wanted to make sure that he was good enough for the next game. So they got together to have a service not to worship God, but to pray for Mr. Mahomes that he would be ready to go for the Kansas City Chiefs. No, that's crazy, isn't it? We would laugh. Why would you have a service? Why would you have a thing just to get together for that? Because in our day in which we live, the one true living God, the God of the Bible, is not to be the only God in people's minds. Isaiah, however, in contrast to that, is absolutely, unabashedly, unashamedly says, No, the reality is is there is only one God, and because of that, there is only one Savior. Instead of having you look at all of them and turn to them, I have a slide I want to show you, because this passage, 
just exerts this truth in no simple way. I mean, it's, it's obviously, look how many, I am the Lord, verse 5, and there is no other. Verse 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 14, surely God is in you, again, and there is no other. Verse 18, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 21, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God, a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, our verse, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I am God. Again, there is no other. Next chapter, and there is no other. I mean, you get the idea what Isaiah is doing. And so when you read the two verses that we're keying in on, 22 and 23, you might think, oh, this is just an isolated incident. No. I mean, the whole chapter has been building to this, and the climax and the crescendo of the message of this chapter is, no matter what's going on around the world, no matter what all the other nations are doing, here's the reality. There is only one true God. If you know anything about Scripture, you would realize that this is Jewish basic Jewish monotheism. It is an anti-God, anti-idol or false God statement that has been true in Israel's scriptures way before Isaiah 45. Deuteronomy 4.39 says in Torah, Know therefore today, lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. Move on to the kingdom era of where kings are in Israel 1 Kings 8.60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Repeatedly, emphatically, from the beginning of Israel's scriptures to the end of Israel's scriptures, here is the one basic truth. There is one single God. The Shema, which every Jewish person who is Orthodox would say until this day in the morning and the evening, is Shema Ya Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is what the Bible has said from the very beginning. And that the great thing about gospel exclusivism, even though there's only one God, here's what it says, from the rising of the sun, verse 6 of Isaiah 45, which is in the east, from the rising of the sun, the east, and to the west, he says, there's only one God. Verse 22 Turn to me and be saved, listen, all the ends of the earth. And so let me tell you this. No matter who you are, no matter what your nationality, no matter what your race, your cultural background, the language you speak, the religion that you were born into and how you were raised, whether you're male or female, young or old, rich or poor, the reality is this. I am God and there is no other. You might say to that, well, Pastor Walker, we live in the 21st century, and I don't like anything that sounds exclusive but puts other people on the outside. Can I tell you this? Please hear me. All religions and all moral claims are exclusive. All of them. Well, you might say, Pastor Walker, here's what I believe. All good people of every religion go to heaven. All good people of every religion go to heaven. Then who have you already excluded? The bad people. You said all good people go to heaven. So what we like to do in making statements like that is we like to set ourselves up as the person who gets to find good and who gets to find bad. And who's on the bad list and who's not. So I often ask people who say, well, all good people go to heaven of every religion. Only bad people 
I mean, and they would say bad people like racists, bad people like rapists, bad people like child molesters. And depending on your moral convictions, you may put on the bad list sexually immoral people. And if that's not your moral conviction, you might say, you know who's on my list? People who judge people who have different sexual orientations or choices, I should say. The point is this. Can I say it? Everyone has a list. Everyone has a list. Some people are on it and some people are not. I have had people tell me this after I've said that to them. They said, well, you know what? I'm not religious at all and I would never exclude anyone for any reason. I go, not true. They go, no, no, Pastor Walker. I would, no matter what your religion, no matter who you are, I believe everyone is going to go to heaven. And I said, including Hitler? Silence. Crickets. I say, how about Stalin? Mussolini? Serial killers? And I go on and on down the list. No answer. Because in their heart of hearts, and you know this to be true, that you do not believe that everyone is going to go to heaven. That there are no moral consequences for our choices. Well, some people are in and some people are out. This is what I hear most of the time. Okay, Pastor Walker, maybe that's true. Maybe there are some really, really, really bad people and they're on the bad list. But even if that's true, why is there only one way to heaven then? Why can't the people who are good find a way other than God or other than Jesus? I have a problem with that because to me when you say it's only one way, I've been told this, it's unfair and narrow-minded. May I ask you, would it be as bizarre to accuse your doctor of being unfair and narrow-minded to prescribe for you the only cure for cancer? Would you argue that there ought to be medical pluralism? By that I mean this. When you go to the doctor and he says, listen, we have a new drug and this will cure your cancer. Could I have another option? Now you laugh because we know that's crazy, right? You would say, give me the pill, I'm taking it today. You wouldn't worry about whether there was another option. Let me ask you, would it be outlandish if we would accuse a fireman or a police officer of being unfair and narrow-minded if there's only one way to escape your burning house. If you're on the top floor and you're at the window screaming for help and they bring the ladder up and break through the window and your whole room you're in is about to be consumed and the fireman says, come on, and you say, is there another ladder? Again, we laugh. We would not argue for safety pluralism, would we? That we need other options. Why? Because the prescription fits the diagnosis. Because when it's as serious as cancer, all we're looking for is one answer. When it's a fire or someone's in your house and the police officer says, hey, there are people with guns on the bottom floor. Get out the back. And you say, no, I'd like to get out the front. Can you make it possible that I could get out? No. You don't do that. Why? You t- because the serious situation, right? You would say, hey, the pers- so there's only one answer for this serious problem. And in most of the, everything in life, we would be fine with that. But somehow when it comes to God, 
and our relationship with him and the forgiveness of our sins. And the Bible says, God says to us, that here's the gospel, here's the good news, that see, I have an answer for cancer of the worst kind of the soul. And and to keep your whole life from burning for eternity, see, I have provided an answer in Jesus. But we think it's unfair and narrow-minded And God retorts to that, and there is no other. The bottom line question in our minds and in this text is raised, and it is, then who can really save you? That's the answer we have to come to the realization of. Who can save you? In our text, in Isaiah 43, 11, it says, I, I am the Lord. Listen to this. And besides me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, 15, our chapter. O God of Israel, the Savior. What kind of Savior? Verse 21. And there is no other God beside me, righteous God and a Savior. Listen to this. And there is no God besides me. In other words, there is no other God. That means there is no other Savior. But our world, and perhaps some of us here today, would be included in the verses right before verses 22 and 23. It says, survivors of the nations who carry about wooden idols, verse 20, look at it, and they keep praying to a God, and look look at it, that cannot save. See, you know why it's loving and compassionate for God to tell you there's only one God and there's only one Savior? You know why? Because all the other things in, in our world and idols that claim to save you, they cannot they cannot. The wooden idols of foreign countries around Israel, they couldn't save. Here's why. It says, listen, the people who worship the wooden, they have to carry them around. These idols can't even transport themselves. They're made of wood, and those who worship them have to carry them around. They can't even move themselves, much less save you. And we live in a culture that has so many different idols and so many different promises that they guarantee you that there is satisfaction at the bottom of a bottle or at the end of a needle or in someone else's bed or in what money can buy you or in fame and popularity and fortune and pleasure. And you name it, there are so many idols not made of wood. Oh, no, not, not today, not in our sophisticated culture. But idols, nonetheless, with promises held out to you that they can save you, that they can save you from your misery, they can save you from your loneliness, they can save you from your despair, they can save you from your depression, they can save you from all of these things. And is it wrong for those who know the truth to stand up and say they cannot? So why do you keep worshiping them? Why do you keep praying to them? God says. Why do you keep giving your life to them? Why do you keep going after them and taking all your time and all your effort and all your energy? Because here's what it is. They don't save. They don't save. They don't satisfy. And you can pursue them all you want and pray to them and ask them and beg them like the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel. And they cannot come through, God says. They cannot save So is it wrong and intolerant and narrow-minded and unfair to then say, Muhammad can't save you. 
Allah can't save you. Buddha can't save you. Confucius, Dalai Lama, the world's religions, they cannot save you. Can I be straight? You cannot save you. Being Baptist won't save you. Being Lutheran, Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist. And it doesn't matter how sincere you are carrying these wooden idols and worshiping them and keep praying. People were incredibly sincere. Pastor Walker, doesn't it matter you know, all, if I'm just sincere and I really mean well? It's not enough. But isn't that intolerant, Pastor Walker? I'm flying out this Thursday morning. My flight leaves at 9.20 to go to Mobile, Alabama. I was invited by a friend I went to college with to come and speak five times at kind of an old-time church revival. And I'll be flying out of Philly on Frontier Airlines. Pray for me. (laughs) But you know what? I thought about my message this week, and so instead... I'm going to show up at Newark Airport on Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And I'm going to go up to the Delta Terminal, and I'm going to present my ticket to the person behind the counter. And I'm going to say, I'd like to get on this flight. And the person behind the counter is going to say, Mr. Walker, um, you're not at the right airport. And not only that, but it's not the right day for your flight. That was yesterday. And... You're not at the right terminal, and this is not the right airlines, and it's not even the right flight number. And I'm going to say to her, well, that is not very tolerant. (laughs) And then she will say to me, Mr. Walker, even if I let you on this flight, hear me, it will not take you where you want to go. Mr. Walker, you have to realize, don't you? All flights don't go to Mobile, Alabama. And she would be right. Can I tell you? Not all gods can get you to heaven. Not all gods can save you from your sin. Not any of the ones I've mentioned or any ones I haven't mentioned. But the gospel has a unique kind of exclusivity. There's only one God, and there's only one way to heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But it's also inclusive because it is for everyone. You notice what he says in verse 22 of our text? Would you look there with me? Turn to me and be saved. Yes, God said, he didn't say, turn to any God you want. No, turn to me, and then you can be saved. But notice the phrase after, all the ends of the earth. Remember the verse 6 from the rising of the sun in the east to the west? Here's what God says. Look on the horizon, as far as you can see across the entire globe. Can I tell you this? There is only one God and only one way to be forgiven and one way to be saved, but that one way is for everyone. Everyone, he says, all the ends of the world. So here's what the gospel, the good news is, hear me. Anyone can take a U-turn. Anyone, anywhere 
can take a gospel U-turn. It doesn't matter if you're Hispanic or Haitian or African or from Dominica or Italian or French or German or even Scottish. Charles Spurgeon was declared the prince of preachers in the 1800s. His sermons were so popular that within an hour after preaching them in London, they had to uh, telegraph 100,000 of them to America. He was probably the most well-known Christian in all of the world during the time of his life in the mid to late 1800s. He made a U-turn in his life and got saved. On, when he was 15 years old, he was his, it was a snowstorm, and he wanted to get to church. Hardly anyone was going out, but he did. He just felt he needed to be at church that day. He walked through a blizzard, And he got to the little church that was near where he lived. And not to his astonishment too much, there was only about 10 people inside. The weather was so bad, the pastor himself didn't even make it. And there was one deacon in the church who came and said, although there are only a few here and the weather's so bad, we need to have a sermon. And so he opened his Bible and he turned to Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I'm God, and there is no other. And although Spurgeon remembers that he wasn't eloquent, and he said it nicely, not the greatest sermon he's ever heard, he said, but God used that to get a hold of my life. And on that day, a teenage Charles Spurgeon made a gospel U-turn and gave his life to Christ. How did Spurgeon get saved? How do you and I become a Christian? You know how you do it? You have to turn. Do you hear what he says? Turn to me, it says. Now, it's interesting because in Hebrew, there are multiple words for turn, and you would think it would be the word for repent in Hebrew when he says turns, but it is not. What it is is turn your face. And the idea is that Israel, or maybe the surrounding nations in particular, they have their face turned toward false gods. And they're thinking that, hey, I hope and trust in this God, and this God's going to save me, and this God's going to deliver me, and it's going to win the day for me. And here's what God says. When you make a gospel, you turn turn from looking at this object as your source of salvation, and you turn your face, and you look here. See, that's what God brought you here this morning. He wants to say, listen, you're looking here and you're thinking that if I could have this job and I could make this money and I could have this girlfriend and if I could have this and I could do this and I could accomplish this, and God says, turn. Turn away from thinking that's where your life is going to be satisfied and that's where you're going to get your joy and happiness and that's where you're going to get your meaning and purpose. He says, turn. Turn your face. Stop looking at that and start looking at me. That's what God says. That's salvation. It means you have to turn away from something and looking at that in order to turn to him. So you might be here and you've grown up Catholic your whole life. So you'd have to turn away from thinking that a church like the Catholic church or any other church in and of itself could save you. And and perhaps you're You're trusting and depending on rituals that you've performed or sacraments that you've accomplished or your own good works and righteousness that you think you're a pretty good person. Here's what God says. See, you have to turn away from looking at that and focusing on that and thinking that's going to save you. And then he says, you have to turn and look to me. He says, look to me and be saved. When I was a youth director, my first youth ministry, I was full-time in youth ministry, full-time going through school and seminary. Uh, we had a camp, 
It was a nice, it wasn't a very luxurious camp, but we had a camp in our church. And every year, I would take four weeks in the summer, and I would do children's camp all four of those weeks. And the requirement for me to be the camp director was I became a lifeguard. So I had to go to the YMCA, and they gave lessons. And so you'd have to go in there, and you'd jump in the water. You had to tread so long. You had to perform all these other things. And one of the things you do is you had to learn to save someone. And here's what they taught us, that when you go up to someone who's drowning or panicking, you can't go right up to them and just grab them because they'll grab you around the throat and you will drown with them. So they have to realize that you're going to save them and you're the only one and you're going to do it your way. And so they had to say this, you don't swim around the front, you have to swim around back of them so they don't see you coming. And you have to tell everybody else to get out of the way because they'll just grab onto anyone who's around and they'll all go down. They won't let go because they're panicking. So he said, listen, you have to get everyone out of the way. There could be no one else but you and the person, and you have to go around the back, and when you do, you have to come up around their shoulder, underneath their arm, and grab them, and then you tell them, listen, I got you. And then you can pull them to the shore. They stop. I said, stop. So you, you basically say, they said, hey, if they're panicking and thrashing, let them do it until they're almost going under. That was great training. I'm thinking, I'm never going to use that until I go to camp. And we had a floating dock, and this kid jumped off of it, and he jumped out the other way where he's a little deeper. He got panicked. He was too far from the shore. He's thrashing around, and here he's yelling, save me, save me. I go, dude, I'm going to have to use this stuff. So I jump in the water. I'm swimming. I go, get out of the way. Yeah, everyone's getting out of the way. Some people climb on the dock. Some people got away. And, goes fast. and this kid is panicking, and I almost forgot. I, almost go. I was in a, such a excitement to get him. I almost got too close. He's grabbing at me. I'm thinking, this guy's going to kill me. I swam around the outside. I remember that training. And I came up. I said, stop. Stop it. I said, calm down. That didn't help anything. <laughs> Still panicked. So I came up behind, and I grabbed him around the shoulder, and I locked it under his arm. He's only like a fourth grader, right? And I said this to him, I got you. He stopped. He realized I was going to save him. Can I tell you, that's how it works with the gospel U-turns. So you can't pick your Savior, and you can't tell him how he's going to save you. But there's a lifeguard on duty for the world, and it's Jesus. And he has made a way to save you. Now listen, there are some of you today, you can thrash around, and you can be panicked, and you say, hey, I don't know how, let, let me tell you this, there is one God, and there is one Savior, and there is no other. And he's made a way for you to have hope of eternal life. And Jesus is that, can I say it, that lifeguard, that savior from your sin. Acts 4.12 says this, and then there is in salvation no, no one else, for there is no other name, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. No one else. Jesus is the only lifeguard on duty. And he's the only one that can save you. Pastor Walker, if that would happen, what would it look like in my life? Can I point out one thing and we're done? Verse 22 says, turn to me. But can you look at verse 23 as we close? 
The word to me begins this little paragraph and ends this little paragraph. He says, turn to me. And how would you demonstrate whether that's true or not? He says, to me. See it? Turn to me. And then at the end he says, to me every knee shall bow. So here's what it looks like. Turn to me means you will bow to me. See, turning to Jesus is bowing to Jesus. It's not just a ticket to forgive my sins and go on my merry way and live however I please. In fact, this phrase, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance, is used twice in the New Testament, once in Romans 14 and once in Philippians 2, and it describes Jesus' death and then his resurrection and then his ascension because he's on the throne. Ultimately, every person, including everyone in this room who has ever lived, will ultimately someday bow the knee and confess the reality that there's one God and one Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. And what Isaiah wants you to know is you can do that today. You can do that today. See, turning to him is bowing to him. And when you bow on your knee and you swear allegiance, you're saying, Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You died and rose again and you're on the throne and you are God alone. And I yield my life to you and I bow to you. Everything I am and have is yours. That's a gospel U-turn. And can I say, perhaps God brought you here today because that's exactly what you need to do. Turn to him. Bow to him. And turn away from all the other gods and claim him as your only savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, and we're going to close our service with my hope is in the Lord, number 540. Where's your hope? What are you trusting in? You say, Pastor Walker, if I die today, I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity. I, I know Jesus. I know about him. I, I pray when I need to, and I even occasionally open the book. I'm not asking that. I'm asking this, what are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What have you put your faith in? Who is really your God? The Bible says there's only one God and there is no other. No other. There isn't salvation to be had in any other person or any other God because there's only one. And with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would there be some here to say, Pastor Walker, I understand that. That is about as clear as I have understood it in my whole life. And you know what? I need to give my life and surrender to King Jesus. He is the one true living God. He died and rose again for my sins. And I believe today he is the only way. He's the only way. And I want to accept that and give my life to him. With no one looking around, would you just say by your slipped up hand, pray for me, Pastor Walker. I might come to know Jesus and give my life to him. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Main floor of the balcony. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else join these two? Thank you. Anyone else? Pastor Walker, listen. He is the one God. And there is one way, and I want to give him my one life. Anyone else? Can I say before I pray, church, does that move you to missions? Do you realize that there are thousands and millions of people 
many of them in our community, they don't have anyone telling them about the one true God. And there's only one way, and you and I have it. We've been blessed and graced. We don't deserve it. How can we not share it? How can we keep it to ourselves? There's only one cure for cancer. What would you think about someone who knew the one cure and didn't tell anybody? Oh, by the grace of God, may that never be us. Never. Father, you know the hearts of all men. And you know the hearts of those who raised their hand this morning, indicating there's a great need that the one true living God and Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ would turn their lives completely around by his grace. Would you do that today? Would you do it for your great name and your glory? Father, for Christians who are here, Father, we have the message, the truth, the cure, as it were. May we never live silently, but with boldness and love, may we proclaim the one truth, because it should be to all the ends of the earth. Help us to do that the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your